Hello, I'm Greg. Welcome to a talkback episode for Inappropriate Conversations number 191. This one came out in December of 2016 under the name False Political Prophecies. And as I recall the year 2016, I believe I spent much of the last half of that year, certainly the time before the election and the immediate aftermath, wanting to record a show, looking back, well, looking back at the fact that this country owes Barack Obama an apology. I felt this way while he was still president of the United States at the end of his term. I would have felt the same way regardless of the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. And I say this having not voted for him on the two occasions that I had the opportunity to do so. My reasons for not voting for Obama have been documented in past inappropriate conversations, but it, it has things, it has to do with things like spying on the American people, um, finding ways to threaten, maybe even subtly through his second Secretary of State, threaten the life of Edward Snowden in a very uh, subtle, but to me unmistakable way. The use of drones and other technology to assassinate American citizens who were abroad, and even if those American citizens were behaving badly, uh, interacting with known enemies, violating direction from the United States government, I was not a big fan of using assassination as a solution for that problem. So my issues with Barack Obama, well documented, and yet we still owe this man an apology. It's been roughly four years later, and nothing has changed except for the fact that that apology is now yet even more overdue. At the night I'm recording this, I believe uh, former President Obama is due to speak on national television at the Democratic National Convention for the year 2020. And uh, I may watch it later online, but I'm recording now instead of watching it because none of this is being influenced by current events. To me, this is looking back not just at 2016, but also at 2012, 2008. And I'm holding people in our country, most of them, political conservatives, most of them from the religious right, accountable for the things that they had to say which were patently false about Obama at that time and since. It still feels current to me, though. And part of the reason is that, you know, as Obama's presidency was winding down at the time I was making this particular recording, it was released December 11th, 2016, I was hearing people talk about Obama and his presidency as the worst in the history of our country. And I realize that people are saying the same thing right now about President Trump. It's just that I feel like that anybody who makes the claim right now about Donald Trump has the receipts. Uh, impeachment, for one thing, being a pretty good example of a receipt. Um, up to 10 counts of obstruction of justice, which might be waiting for him in the hands of a new uh, attorney general leading the Department of Defense in the aftermath of his presidency. I mean, clearly, there's a lot of things seriously wrong with the way Donald Trump has administered the administrative branch of the United States government in his time at the White House. But I can recall asking, in a very public way, both on the Inappropriate Conversations page, on Twitter, on my personal Facebook page, uh, even in direct correspondence with family members who had made these claims that this was the worst president ever. And I simply asked back then, 2016, 17, for one example. 
My theory was, if Obama was the worst president in the history of our country, maybe the worst president that you could possibly conceive of in the history of the world of democracies all over this globe, if he was as bad as people said, it shouldn't be hard at all to come up with one random example. Just one example of where he was the worst. And upon putting that challenge out there years ago, what I got back was a whole lot of backtracking and backsliding on the, well, uh, I didn't really say he was the worst. I've, I've got copies of social media interaction. They did say he was the worst. But I think they realized that at the end of his term, a lot of what they were thinking was going to be so terrible about him were false political prophecies. Things that had been said or were alleged to have been true that didn't actually turn out to be true. Things that they may have thought in the first quarter or two quarters of his terms in office and didn't turn out to be true. And in the aftermath of those false statements, they simply just moved forward for four years or eight years, assuming that all their worst presumptions might actually somehow be real. And we called to take them into account when called to explain themselves, when called to give a single solitary example of how Obama was a worse president than even in just my lifetime, how his mistakes were bigger than the mistakes of Nixon and Carter and Reagan, for example. They really struggled to come up with a single example that they could stand behind, and they knew it. Hence, all of a sudden, well, maybe he wasn't the worst, the worst. It was just really, it was really bad, and uh, we needed to make a change. In retrospect, I question the intelligence of anybody who feels like the change we've experienced in the last four years is in any way corrective or arguably better than the eight years prior. And I would even include in those eight years prior the first three to six months when the new Obama administration was trying to clean up an unprecedented mess economically and to some degree politically left behind for them by the George W. Bush administration. In fact, I would have argued at the time that the George W. Bush administration could make the claim that they were the worst presidential administration of my lifetime. I don't know if I would go so far as saying in the history of our country, but things have gotten worse after Obama, and they were pretty bad before Obama. And for that reason, the United States of America owes former President Obama an apology. Among the people that I think I would have had these interactions with, People who swallowed the lies about false predictions about everything that was going to go wrong in our country if we elected Obama to be president was a relative that I had a recent interaction with that was frankly no better than those those interactions in 2016 and 17. I simply shared something from the Lincoln Project online that was a gentle, in my opinion, reminder that it's against the law for the president of the United States to attack his political opponent during a government-funded press conference. It's also against the law for the President of the United States to be promoting one particular company's products, or today, as I'm recording, attacking a company and telling Americans not to buy that company's products, because that company, Goodyear in this case, was not doing enough to help promote the President's cause. By making a statement that we are going to be a workplace that does not have political advertising on our t-shirts and our hats, that even an even-handed argument that we're not going to campaign for or against the president on the floors of our factories or in the hallways of our office buildings was somehow enough to make the president of the United States call for a boycott. Ironically, 
implementing his own version of cancel culture, while all the same being an, outs- an outspoken critic of cancel culture itself as some sort of political correctness. That is the standard we're dealing with right now, and it's a huge precipitous drop from the standard that we were dealing with during the Obama years. In response to this post that I put up, though, a, uh, you know, an indirect relative, I guess is the way I would describe it, chimed in to say, well, yeah, we'll make sure you tell everyone that it's illegal to break into businesses and burn police buildings and police cars. And as always with these things, I found it to be incredibly selective. I'm, I'm influenced to many degrees by the meme about Colin Kaepernick years ago that says that it's ironic than when, when a professional athlete takes a knee in this country to protest racism, that so many people immediately assume that he's protesting the American flag because to, I guess, most of the people who objected to Colin Kaepernick's form of protest, America is racism, and to protest racism is to protest America. Similar thing here. I'm not condoning anybody who has looted a business or um, set a building or a police car on fire. But it's important for us to remember that the actual protesters who are out there on the streets still in many cities are not protesting police themselves per se. They're protesting police brutality. They're protesting um, abuse of power. And do not conflate police work generally with police brutality. Because it is wrong to defend police brutality. And if you make it, dear relative, the only way I can attack police brutality is to attack police and law enforcement writ large. Then I'm likely to decide to go ahead and attack police and law enforcement writ large. That maybe the slogan, the the campaign of defund the police is a little bit... Maybe it feels like it's an overreach. Maybe it's not uh, precisely clear in its use of language. But if the only way to stop criminal behavior by police, abuse of power, uh, obstruction of justice by prosecutors, and other crimes, including murder, if the only way to stop that is to completely dismantle every police department in the country and start from scratch, we don't, don't give me that choice because you may not like the choice that I come up with. You may not like the way I choose that. Because to me, police brutality and police force are not the same thing. But again, the same kind of people who confuse protesting racism with protesting America also confuse protesting police brutality with protesting police in general. And it's a mistake. My answer back was, in my mind, again, trying to be hyper-respectful, Based on the last two episodes, the introduction to Letting Justice Roll 1, and two episodes back, the newer Letting Justice Roll 2 episode, I think I've explained why I'm trying to be as careful and respectful as as I can of my elders, but that doesn't mean I should not be outspoken. When our elders are wrong, they need to hear words of correction. It's just possible to do that in a way that tries the utmost to maintain the dignity and respect of that elder member of the family. I wouldn't limit businesses, police buildings, and police cars to this list of illegal activities that we should, you know, avoid doing. Yes to all of that, but it's also illegal to break into someone's home, shoot them while they are sleeping. 
it's illegal to fire a weapon into a second floor window of an office building, whether the person in that office building is using his or her phone to record events happening on a public street or not. The principle here is that no one is above the law. And I used to think that everyone agreed about that, that no one is above the law, and that includes police officers, are not above the law. I still want to be hopeful that this is true. And I think the best way forward is genuine leadership from those in authority. Because as both Jesus and the Apostle Paul taught, to those who have been given the most, the most will be expected from them by our Father in heaven. And the most could mean the most talent, the most resources, the most faith, but it also could mean the most authority and the most power. My problem with this is, those were words of correction. I was correcting somebody who had said, hey, make sure we're calling out that it's illegal to be a looter and it's illegal to burn police cars. I said, well, that's awfully selective, isn't it? Because it's also illegal to break into someone's home in the middle of the night and shoot them while they're sleeping. The thing is, I think it went right over this family member's head. The answer I got back was a simple word of agreement. Well, I'm afraid if you agreed with me, we wouldn't be having these kind of disagreements online. If you agreed with me, we'd have the same point of view about being really aggressive to deal with corruption in our police force. We'd be really aggressive to address all the issues I've called out, not just in letting justice roll two about a month ago, but letting justice roll one, which was a talk back two weeks ago of a show originally recorded five years ago. We have a lot of work to do. And I think the same people who would be quick to parse out the difference between the crime of a police officer committing a murder as being somehow less important than the crime of people looting stores. I get that we have better video, perhaps, of people in Minnesota looting stores. But as I noted in past episodes recently here, we've also got pretty good video of the Umbrella Man functioning anonymously, perhaps as an agent of the police or a sympathizer with uh, wanting police to get away with police brutality without any consequences, was certainly the instigator of the broken windows that led to all of the havoc in in Minnesota, right in that immediate aftermath of the protests that emerged spontaneously because of the murder of George Floyd. Put it this way, if you had just one, call it magic bullet, If there was one um, sweeping solution you could impose, given the choice between rounding up all the looters and stamping out all the protests and putting people in their place for daring to criticize authorities like police and district attorneys, or arresting the police officers who murdered Breonna Taylor and other police officers who made false misleading claims in their reports about that incident, and anyone else who's covered up those crimes, and holding politically accountable, if not in other ways, perhaps disbarment, um, prosecutors who have chosen to ignore the criminal acts, switching off body cameras, things that speak to criminal intent. Um, If you could only do one of those two things, which would you do? And it's really telling if you stop and think about what the possible answers there are. I believe I have people in my circles family, friends, acquaintances, who given the choice there would definitely use their one shot to address the looters and the protesters and other, uh, what I would describe as aftermath activities, many of them criminal. 
And what they don't understand is, if you could use the one magic bullet to deliver very quick, almost instant justice to the police officers who behaved either incompetently or criminally in the murder of Breonna Taylor, you're actually using one bullet to solve both problems. If you arrest the officers who killed George Floyd right away and charge them appropriately right away, you don't have the same kind of protests that turned violent in Minneapolis. If you arrest the police officers who murdered Breonna Taylor, you would no longer be seeing this ongoing impetus of protest and even angry, violent protest right now in the streets. In other words, if you solve the underlying injustice, you get to solve both problems. Where if you only try to put out the fire, you're not dealing with the fundamental issues that caused the fire to break out in the first place. It's naive, frankly. As naive as suggesting that standing up against racism is somehow bizarrely un-American. And perhaps even worse, feeling that way and not recognizing it for the toxic white supremacy that it is. Here's the thing. We've recently been given an interesting case study with a young boy who was shot by a black man and was pretty much, the black man was uh, caught in a manhunt that lasted 24 hours or less. He was arrested. He's been charged. He's very likely to go to jail for the rest of his life. I don't know the laws in the States, so I can't speak to whether the death penalty is on the table, but justice was swift and aggressively imposed. We are still waiting for any sort of justice whatsoever to be levied in the situation that happened in Louisville with Breonna Taylor. And I still think that I'm holding my breath to see if what happened with George Floyd in Minneapolis is going to turn into an act of justice, or if we're going to see some prosecutorial misconduct or some other grand jury shenanigans like we did in states like Missouri in 2014 that at that last moment snatch opportunities for justice out of the hands of, well, what our criminal justice system ought to be. If the only way to make this right is to dismantle police unions, if the only way to make this right is to share personnel information across police departments across the entire country and make sure that we can never hire again somebody who's got a record of police brutality and a series of documented complaints against them. If the only way to do it is to do things which maybe to some people who are in an older generation than mine feel just a little bit inappropriate, just a little bit over the top. Well, I don't know. Um, Which one's more over the top? Breaking into a home of innocent people because you're trying to arrest somebody that you already had in custody and didn't know it? And switching off your body cameras on the way in that in that door because maybe you know in your heart of hearts this probably isn't just a straight-up arrest of somebody with a, who has a criminal complaint. This is more of a, an assassination against somebody who's suspected of a crime and you'd rather not have that be captured on your body camera. All of these things lead me to believe that there's something fundamentally wrong with the police work is being done. And you could say, well... It's an isolated incident. I don't know. It's isolated in Louisville and Minneapolis and St. Louis and New York City. And I could go on and on and on with such a widespread abuse of power being clearly documented across multiple years, but all recent years here and multiple cities and states and 
you know, area codes for that matter, we have a problem stretching out across this entire country. And right now, I'm not convinced we're doing enough to solve it. In fact, the few things that I think were done to address abusive policing in the last, say, 10 to 15 years were done during the Obama administration. And at the time, I think people would have said that his desire to ensure that police work is being done properly and that justice is being served is maybe one of the many things that make people think he's the worst president in the history of our country. Well, they were wrong then. They were wrong from before 2008 all the way until after 2016. And I, among others, am waiting for a long overdue apology. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about false political prophecies. I've had this on my list to do from an inappropriate conversations perspective for quite some time. Frankly, I could have done it four years ago. And I think when we get into it a little bit, we'll see that other people did do what I'm about to do four years ago. But it seemed more appropriate to hit this at the end of the Obama administration. And uh, to be frank, six weeks have gone by between the last inappropriate conversations show and this one. And the dear family member episode was basically going to be a precursor to what I thought might have been a pretty quick follow-up here in looking at false prophets within Christianity, whether they be actual pastors or leaders of nonprofit groups or lobbying groups or whatnot. But just too many things kind of got in the way, some of it election-related, some of it more on the work and personal life side of the scale. I also had made a prediction online, probably via Twitter, I'm not sure how I shared it, that I would have a couple of things happening in early December and then take a long holiday break. But now it feels more like here I am closer to the middle of December than the beginning, putting out the inappropriate conversation show for the month of December. I still have a Walk the Earth planned, and then following that, right around New Year's, either New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, possibly later, depending on whether the world gets in the way, an inappropriate conversation show that'll have somewhat of a resolutions kind of a feel to it. But there were a couple of things I wanted to do right at the beginning of this show, since I haven't really spoken about the election. It does feel in many ways like the Dear Family Member episode of Inappropriate Conversations that came out in very early November. Um, it That probably felt like it was a post-election hangover show, just having been recorded before the elections themselves. And I don't think I was predicting in any way that the elections would be as surprising to many people as they were, and clearly are, with more than a two million vote difference in the popular vote uh, versus the Electoral College. And there are so many things I could do here if I wanted to spend time on that. But I'm going to narrow it down and just kind of throw a couple of quick ideas out just to kind of live up to my reputation, I suppose, as a radical moderate, and maybe even be a little bit controversial about it. We'll see. But 
Before I get into the topic today, let me sort of dismiss 2016 with prejudice. I guess I'll do these with references to the past. Inappropriate Conversations 35, very first year of the show, probably November of that year, tying, tying out with election season, I talked about the Electoral College. I still have somewhat lukewarm feelings about the Electoral College, and I think my uh, point of view expressed all those years ago was probably lukewarm as well. If I was making a key point, though, I think the key point that I was making then, and um, maybe my perspective about the Internet and the way Internets have influenced elections have changed dramatically here in the last couple of cycles, was that you really only – you can only supplant the purpose of the Electoral College. And I know there's a lot of controversy over what those various purposes might be, but there's at least one purpose of the Electoral College, making sure that elections are truly national, not focused just solely in the population and influence centers of our country. But I think that that problem may be uh, lessening and lessening. Obama's elections, both of them really, demonstrated that the Internet can be a powerful tool for getting any individual, even small local issue, heard on a national stage. But the other problem with the Electoral College that I think people are not taking seriously enough is that it is a core constitutional concept. And my opinion is that a constitutional concept needs to be managed, well, constitutionally. I've recorded an episode this year called Constitutional Crisis, a legitimate constitutional crisis of the United States Senate just deciding that they don't have to do what the Constitution says in the area of advice and consent. And I wouldn't want anyone else on any other corner of the political spectrum to take that same shortcut and ignore what the Constitution says regarding the Electoral College. If there needs to be a change, that change needs to be made with the Constitution in mind. It was a couple of years later, still November, this time 2012, I recorded Inappropriate Conversations 104. The working title of that was Whoever Says the Truth Shall Die. Not sure I went with that, that being a reference to an Italian film. But I spoke a little bit about third parties then, and I want to speak a little more about third parties now. Because I think third party voting has become much more controversial this year with surprise election results. The one thing I will say is that as proud as I was of voting for third parties in the last two elections before this one, I'm equally proud that I chose not to this time for reasons I've outlined in great detail in recent Inappropriate Conversation shows. But I'm still not willing to take pot shots at people who did. I guess the reference I would make here goes back to August of 2010, Inappropriate Conversations 24, when I named Ralph Nader as a different drummer in a show called Elections Are Not Horse Races. I allowed Jello Biafra, if I'm not mistaken, the lead singer of the Dead Kennedys, to speak on this issue for me. And I think that his words then are still true now, maybe to a lesser degree, because this was far much, much more close than the 2000 election, in my opinion. There's a bigger gap between the popular vote of the two candidates, for example. But as far as I'm concerned, you can't look to the third party in isolation and say, well, X number of people voted for Johnson or Stein, and therefore that cost Clinton in this particular state, because it begs the question that those people inevitably would have voted for Clinton. So let me walk through this just high level again, because it's something I have a little bit of passion about. 
If you believe that the Johnson voter, for example, is just stupid, Republican in denial, and therefore uh, you count his votes toward Clinton, you're making a big mistake. I do know libertarians who are very, very anti-Trump and probably would not switch their political affiliation to Republican if forced to pick one of the two main choices out there. But they're by far the minority. Most of the uh, new libertarians out there, this new strain of libertarianism, are essentially people who fit into what used to be the Republican camp. And if they've left, they've left because the Republicans have themselves drifted away. It's an example like my own personal relationship with the Republican Party. I've stayed exactly where I have always been. I didn't leave. The party, in essence, ideologically left me. In my case, they, they did it over a long, long period of time. But libertarians, I think, the ones that I know and interact with online, this is maybe a 10 or 15 year thing. This doesn't go back decades. But again, most of them left the Republican Party to seek a third party alternative. They weren't going to vote for Clinton. So you can leave them out. But even if you can find enough Stein voters to say, well, just in her case alone in a state like maybe Michigan, if all the people who voted for Stein had voted for Clinton, it would have made a difference. Yeah, perhaps that's true. But that is not as troubling to me as the other two things. The number of Democrats who voted for Trump instead of Clinton. This is a stat we don't see people banding about because it's hard to get good numbers on it. You have to make a judgment call. I mean, we can definitely say how many people voted for Stein. And we can guess about what their political affiliation would, would be. But I don't know that we can say for sure exactly how many people who are registered Democrats voted for Trump. Or if so, those numbers are not being shared very freely. Because it's counter to the narrative. It's so easy for us to get angry in Florida in the year 2000 about thousands of people who voted for Nader when, you know, many, many more thousands by a factor of adding a digit were Democrats who voted for Bush. So I think you've got to look into your own house first. None of this even gets to the question of Democrats who chose not to vote at all. So I think the biggest number in states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, are Democrats who didn't vote at all. The next biggest number are Democrats who voted for Trump instead of Clinton. The next biggest number are the Stein voters. And I view the Johnson and Weld type voters as irrelevant because I don't think that anywhere near the majority of them would have voted for Clinton in the first place. In other words, it's a misdirected form of anger to be looking at third parties when so much went wrong within the actual political party of the Democrats alone. This is not unlike the drama that I experienced firsthand In 2012, as somebody who was registered as a Republican and voted for a third party, there was so much more wrong with Romney's campaign than any one person or even one entire group of people or block of people voting for the Green Party or any other political party that would be third party or fringe in terms of their meaningful impact upon the overall election. The last thing, though, is that I think the crazy is still out there. So before I dive into this, maybe it's a nice segue to it. Just a few days before the election, at the time that I was still dwelling on whether or not I had people in my family who were uh, crazy enough, I guess is the word, to think that maybe somebody who showed up holding a um, Republicans against Trump sign had a gun and that the sign was a gun. And I mean, calling that an assassination attempt was one of the key points I was making in terms of how broken the logic, reason and relationships are within some of my circles if people are that delusional. Well, here's another one. 
I'd recorded a podcast called Constitutional Crisis, shared it everywhere I share podcasts. Uh, you can get it at inappropriateconversations.org, where everything I've ever recorded is available. I uh, took the step of sharing out of sequence that particular episode on SoundCloud. I'd been for months now putting clips and, and little snips of every previous inappropriate conversation, starting at the first and kind of working my way forward. I'm in the low hundreds today, giving people an audio hint as to what those shows are about. But I broke with that form and put a recent inappropriate conversations out on SoundCloud because I felt like the message was that important, that it needed to be heard. I took a somewhat unusual step for me of putting it not just on inappropriate conversations and walk the earth places, but also on some of my personal places that I interact with folks online. My point of view about what a constitutional crisis is well established. Well, here's the Facebook post. I believe it was Facebook that I saw from a family member saying something to this regard. You do realize that if elected president, Obama could pardon Hillary, or she could pardon herself if she's elected the day she takes office. Hashtag constitutional crisis. No, I'm sorry. The president exercising authority that is directly given to him or her in the U.S. Constitution is not a constitutional crisis. I don't believe it was a constitutional crisis when Ford pardoned Nixon, for example. There are all, all kinds of issues related to it, and uh, whatever it spared us in drama, it probably cost us enclosure, but not a constitutional crisis. And for him to call out that specific terminology and compare that to what happens if the U.S. Senate simply refuses for a year or five years or nine years to provide any advice and consent and therefore create some sort of blockade that could potentially dwindle the U.S. Supreme Court down to no justices whatsoever, that's a constitutional crisis. And I still feel like the holdup to Merrick Garland is not fully over yet. If it is fully over yet, then this will be the last time that this still registered Republican ever votes for a Republican to sit in the U.S. Senate for the balance of my lifetime. That's a guarantee. Part of the reason that I feel so strongly about it is how much we've gotten wrong here. I think we've found out just in the few uh, few weeks of transition team activity for what could be the future Trump presidency, that many of the things that he had to say weren't true. He perhaps knew they weren't true, or he was foolish to think they were true. And now that he actually has to govern as he campaigned, he's backing away from all of those sorts of things. Well, this is, you might say, well, that's classic politician. That's politics 101 in America. It's always been that way for my entire lifetime. And while there is certainly some truth to that claim that it's, quote-unquote, always been this way, you don't get to run as a fringe candidate who's an outsider, who's, who's going to be different, who's not more of the same, who's going to provide real change, and then behave in some ways worse than everyone else in terms of this sort of duplicity. We've had a lot of talk about fake news and uh, folks like Twitter and Facebook in particular trying to come to terms with the role that they played in misinformation getting out there. I also think in the midst of all of these sort of the swill of misinformation that people have been consuming, we sort of lost our moral bearings that we impeached or threatened to impeach a president for his role in the conspiracy to break into the private files of the Democratic National Committee, steal that information, leverage it in trying to throw or ensure a victory in a, in a campaign. That is not fundamentally different from what we are now aware of the Russians and WikiLeaks conspiring to do, whether uh, 
directly through some conspiracy or indirectly through some, again, some, some form of, of sabotage on behalf of the Trump presidential campaign and, and perhaps less so the Republican Party as a whole, we no longer respect the ideas of privacy. And at the same time that the current sitting Republican-led U.S. Congress is passing legislation to give businesses more control over their intellectual property, more ability to even preemptively, in a pre-trial way, reacquire laptops or files that are stolen when an you know, employee leaves a company, voluntarily or involuntarily, and chooses to take information with them that they're not, they're not legally allowed to take, that doesn't legally belong to them. The, the Congress has strengthened the regulations to prevent that kind of, of theft of intellectual property. And yet theft of intellectual property is one of the hallmarks of what just happened inside this election cycle. And I've got a lot of people who are, again, in my friends and family circles who don't seem to recognize how completely and totally inconsistent that is, who don't seem to recognize that if they left their company with copies that they've made, whether on a jump drive or or paper copies even, of that company's long-term strategic plan and went out to interview with that plan information with them as maybe their portfolio for the interview process, that they are violating the law. They are, uh, they are subject to stiff penalties recently passed in the U.S. Congress. And frankly, if I was doing an interview with somebody who was coming from an indirect competitor or even a direct competitor, and they were offering to share with me the illegally obtained intellectual property of that other company, interview is over. This person cannot be hired, period. And if that person was hired and I was unaware that they were planning this, and they unleashed this flow of, of ill-gotten information in their first few weeks on the job, they're not going to make it through the probationary period. They're going to be fired. We fire people for doing the things that the Republicans have simply benefited from, ignored, pretended it's not a big deal, or maybe someone in the Trump campaign conspired with either WikiLeaks or the Russian government to engineer. It's extremely concerning. That is the kind of thing that I would describe as a constitutional crisis. So I sent a little note to myself off to the side and said, hey, when I get ready to record the next inappropriate conversation, call out this as a canard of sorts. This is just more nonsense that people have used to try to sleep at night with the fact that they are now doing willingly what we've actually impeached or attempted to impeach presidents for doing. That, And then getting confused over whether Emails represent a constitutional crisis. Again, I could go on for half an hour if I let myself. I better stop myself right now because what I want to do instead of looking with a foreboding vision toward what a Trump presidency might represent, I want to look back eight years, four years in some cases, to dire predictions that others made during the Obama presidency, really right at the start of the Obama presidency, because for starters, I think it's really important to call it out for the lies that these things were. To question, in fact, the Christianity of so-called Christians who have who put forth these kinds of re, of lies and overreactions, but also to maybe give us a little bit of comfort that we might be making the same mistake as people who did not vote for Trump. It's important to be simultaneously aware that the sky is probably not falling, and yet to never stop looking upward. So it's kind of that combination. When I wrote the uh, article about a year ago called Candy-Coated Apostasy, 
looking at a sort of a different perspective, a distinctly Christian perspective on Syrian refugees. I did this then. I was sort of talking out of maybe both sides a little bit because as a radical moderate, that's something I'm allowed to do. And to say that at the same time that we must be vigilant and we must maintain the high standards we've already set. And if there are any gaps, strengthen those, but strengthen them in a measured, intelligent way to make sure that we don't expose ourselves to some sort of international-based attack or some sort of calamity. But that doesn't mean that you go from one extreme to the other. You don't go ditch to ditch. We've got to figure out how to play our role in the world if we really presume to be the leaders of the world in dealing with a massive refugee crisis, while at the same time, again, not being naive about the fact that there is some danger. So kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth, but it's so easy to fall into the temptation of thinking that everything that Trump has said he's going to do, he's going to be able to do, and much of it is unconstitutional, a lot of it is morally and ethically wrong, and what would the consequences of those things be? Because you take them to their logical extreme and you sort of assume the worst will happen. Well, let's go back in time eight years and take a look at what things the right side of the political spectrum said were going to be true about Obama. And I'll tell you as we get into it, some of them actually were true. But even where they had the prediction right, they so often made the wrong conclusions as a result. And that's the mistake that I think that the people who are the most fearful, perhaps even the most legitimately fearful about what might happen during a Trump presidency, need to kind of be aware of. That the prediction game needs to be one week at a time. It doesn't make any sense for someone to go ahead and predict what's going to happen in every single game for the rest of the entire NBA season. If you want to make a prediction about next week's game, great. Let's not get into the ball game of predicting the playoffs just yet. What are you singing? <gasps> Have you never heard this? No. It's uh, Flight of the Concords. <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's a a song about after the robots kill all the humans. Okay. And take over the world. And they go, the humans are dead. That's right, they are dead. The humans are dead. I poked this one, it's dead. (laughs) It's good, I gotta make you listen to it. Alrighty then. (laughs) Anomaly. Something that deviates from what is standard, normal, or expected. An oddity. Peculiarity. Irregularity. Inconsistency. Incongruity. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly. The podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek. Star Wars. Lord of the Rings. Buffy. Firefly. Gaming. Books. Costuming. And general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. So the obvious starting point here is probably something that Focus on the Family put out right after the 2008 election, or even right before it, I think, predicting what would happen because they're trying to influence the results of that election by writing a fake letter. Uh, fictional is probably a better word for it because it wasn't like they were pretending it was real. From 2012, it was dated October 2012, uh, with a tagline of like from a concerned Christian voter or something like that, warning people of all the terrible things that were going to happen if Obama was elected. Well, the first article that I want to refer to is written by Fred Clark, Pathios.com, and I, I do look to Clark quite a bit. And I mentioned earlier that 
I'm covering ground that other peoples have covered. Clark hit this October 1st, 2012, looking back at the previous set of predictions. And, you know, he gets us started with this. Let's be generous. We'll give them half credit for prediction number 10, that correctly foresaw the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but then also incorrectly predicted a host of disastrous consequences of that repeal. Obama did repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But Christians have not been expelled from the military, and the Pentagon isn't paying special bonuses to LGBT recruits. But still, that one comes closer than any of the other 33 predictions, which are all utterly wrong. So maybe we cut focus some slack and say that they're 0.5 for 34. That was the point of view four years ago. Well, let me just go straight to the letter and hit some of the things that Clark referred to then, calling out how wrong those predictions were, and doing it really at the right time. If you tell me that you've written a letter from the future in 2012, 2012 is the right year to look at it. But let's be honest, more dire predictions and irresponsible um, irresponsible uses of information, misinformation, not knowing facts, that sort of thing, has crept in in the four years since then. It was a, a part of the election cycle in 2012. I'm afraid our historians are not going to remember this. 2016 is going to stand out like such a sore thumb that it's going to be hard. It's going to take an act of will on historians looking at the political landscape from, say, the year 2001 on to remember that this was sort of a, a steady growth in misinformation and lies and so forth. It's going to feel like there was a spike, and frankly, maybe there there was a spike. But let me start off with same-sex marriage. In 2012, Fred Clark correctly listed this as a prediction that was not accurate. It did not happen between 2008 and 2012. It happened a little bit later. But once again, like that, even if you were uber generous and said that the actions by several states would turn into a con- the Supreme Court making a ruling, the Supreme Court didn't make a ruling because Obama stacked the Supreme Court. That was the allegation in this letter from Focus on the Family. That didn't happen. But the Supreme Court did rule that it really did not make sense for there to be multiple definitions of marriage across multiple states, that some states, by legislation, declaring they're not going to recognize the legal relationships that are true in other states. So the Supreme Court did step in. But then after that, you get this string in the same letter of predicted consequences of this. After the decision, the letter predicted all those years ago, many other policies changed as uh, several previous Supreme Court cases were reversed rather quickly, raising the question, is America still the land of the free? The Boy Scouts no longer exist as an organization. They chose to disband rather than be forced to obey a Supreme Court decision that they would have to hire homosexual scoutmasters and let them sleep in the tents with the young boys. Now, I'm italicizing maybe more of their words than their italicizing, but the intent is clear. Elementary schools now include compulsory training on varieties of gender identity in grade one. I'm not 100% sure I would find this to be the end of the world as we know it, but that's their prediction. Adoption agencies. There's no more Roman Catholic or Evangelical Protestant adoption agencies in the United States. They're all gone. Following earlier rulings in other states and in the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court decided that those agencies have to agree to place children with homosexual couples or lose their licenses. Just as the Catholic Charities Adoption Agency has closed down for the same reason in, in Massachusetts, or so the article says. Doctors and um, lawyers being forced uh, against their will to 
uh, provide art, uh, to support artificial insemination for lesbian couples or to legally defend them. Public broadcasting, the Bible, can no longer be freely preached over the radio or television stations when the subject matter includes such offensive doctrines as criticizing homosexual behavior. And so this notion, we've actually seen it. I, it's not unusual for me to get one of these, uh, again, fake, alt-right-driven uh, news stories about television banning some show because it referenced Jesus or whatever, all of them proving to be false. It's hard for me to imagine a more difficult job right now, in, late in 2016, than an online fact-checker. Uh, somebody like PolitiFact and, um, and Snopes, their staff must be pressured to the extreme because often I'm going to places like that to do verification of information that seems so obviously bogus that is bogus. It's just I'm getting there days before they finally get to it because the load of nonsense is just that high. Uh, homosexual weddings under that heading. Church buildings are now considered a public accommodation by the Supreme Court, and churches have no freedom to refuse to allow their buildings to be used for wedding ceremonies for homosexual customers. And if they refuse, they lose their tax-exempt status, and they are increasingly becoming subject to fines and anti-discrimination lawsuits. And while the churches are free to turn down homosexual applicants for the jobs of senior pastor— Churches and parachurch organizations are no longer free to reject homosexual applicants for staff positions, such as part-time youth pastor or director of counseling. All this is clearly nonsense. The courts have done a very good job holding to the First Amendment and drawing that dividing line between what's a church and what's not a church. It's less that the Supreme Court or the Obama administration has been confused about where that dividing line is, and more that businesses... Uh, Hobby Lobby comes to mind. Can't seem to tell the difference between what is a church and what is not a church. High schools are no longer free to allow see you at the poll meetings where students can pray together or any Bible studies before school. It didn't happen. Tens of thousands of young churches suddenly had no place to meet when the Supreme Court ruled that public schools in all 50 states had to stop allowing churches to rent their facilities. Uh, that did not happen. Campus organizations such as Campus Crusades for Christ and InterVarsity, uh, lists a few others there, have shrunk to skeleton organizations and in many states have had to cease to exist. And uh, the allegation is that the Supreme Court's going to rule that proselytizing is hate speech. Here's the problem. It, there is no doubt in my mind that the staffing levels of InterVarsity, for example, are lighter than they used to be. It's not because of something that's coming from the political left. It's not because of something that Obama has done or that the Supreme Court or any other court has ruled. InterVarsity is in the process of executing its own inquisitional-style witch hunt to root out anybody from its organization who has even a lukewarm attitude toward the question of gay marriage, yes or no. It's a bit of a litmus test being applied by the organization through the organization. And it's not unlike what happened with World Vision, where a bit of a purge is happening. That purge is not coming from pressure from anybody that could be described as being from the political left. The purge is coming from the people on the political right who simply cannot abide sitting in a lunchroom inside a nonprofit organization next to somebody who happens to care very deeply for someone in their family or someone in their friend circle who is gay and married. That that is some, has become some sort of a line that can't be crossed, despite the fact that when asked directly on the question of the eternal significance of marriage, Jesus, in Mark's gospel, I believe, laid it out plainly. There's not going to be marriage in heaven. This is not an eternal concept. It's in the Bible, which 
you know, I think while people like Focus on the Family obsess so much about whether the Bible is going to be allowed to be sold in bookstores and allowed to be shared over the public airwaves, should just actually stop and read it for themselves. They might find a ton of really interesting information coming out of it. With doctors and nurses and abortion, another part of the letter, I've seen many more situations where instead of doctors and nurses being forced to violate their conscience by helping somebody in a moment of medical need, we're seeing a continuation of a, of a long ongoing trend of patients actually being placed in potential grave medical peril because doctors and nurses have their thumb on the other side of the scale, not feeling any obligation to the Hippocratic Oath to save the life of a patient if saving the life of that patient might in any way whatsoever endanger the life of the fetus. Now, the, the fact of the matter is that this thing is a situation-by-situation decision made by doctors, perhaps by doctors and their employers. It ought to be doctors and their conscience, patients and their conscience. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But we haven't seen anything like doctors being rooted out of organizations for choosing to refer a patient to another doctor or another facility rather than provide a specific type of care. So gun ownership is the big one. It's the one that I wanted to end with. Their prediction was that it's illegal for private citizens to own guns for self-defense in eight states, and the number is growing with increasing democratic control of legislatures and governorships. This is all the result of a Supreme Court decision that reversed previous private gun ownership decisions, taking away Second Amendment rights, and so forth and so on. Now, we've talked about this before in inappropriate conversations. I mentioned it kind of on the side in Seeing Spot Run about a year or so ago, uh, October, November of 2015. And I guess I mentioned it maybe a little bit during my long, free-flowing rant called Dear Family Member here recently. But the Supreme Court doesn't have the power to simply redline the Second Amendment out of existence. But maybe this is a little bit more measured than that. Maybe it's sensing that my right to have a paramilitary arsenal in my basement could be impacted if the Supreme Court makes a decision that may, that makes me not part of a, rel, a well-regulated militia, that if I make a decision that I am a personal militia unto myself and the uh, Supreme Court or some other court uh, makes a ruling that calls that into question, then maybe my right to own a mini arsenal could be impacted. But it seems extremely unlikely, and it never has during the last eight years seemed likely that anybody was going to make a ruling that said that a handgun, a rifle, a shotgun, whatever my chosen method of defending myself was going to be taken away from me. This is and has always been a ruse. And it calls to mind the meme I've been seeing lately. Was, you know, 2016 is almost over. When's Obama going to come take my guns? The fact of the matter is you can't spend the better part of a decade declaring that Barack Obama slash Hillary Clinton slash John Kerry slash anybody else is going to come take your guns without beginning to lose credibility even with yourself. For some of these people, how do you sleep at night? The reality is, that was not going to happen. It was never going to happen. And it did not happen. How could it have still been an election issue in 2016? These are the kinds of questions which I think history is going to remember us collectively in a very negative, perhaps even in a sarcastic, joke, punchline kind of a way. We are indeed that foolish. This focus on the family penned letter went on to suggest that homeschooling would be ruled illegal. 
if anything, segregation uh, through the vehicle of homeschooling, among other vehicles, is worse now than at any point in our history. I'm not saying I'd solve that problem by making homeschooling illegal, but the pendulum has shifted in the opposite direction. And I don't see Obama's administration, and I wouldn't have predicted Clinton's administration would be doing anything to necessarily flip that the other way. This article predicted uh, terrorist attacks, that Obama would uh, call upon intelligence services to cease all wiretapping of alleged terrorist phone calls. If anything, Obama is guilty of expanding surveillance, illegal surveillance, of innocent U.S. citizens, not just international citizens, during his time in office. Uh, predicting the uh, health care, the, the death panel prediction was in here. It makes you wonder whether there was some collusion that this wasn't just uh, uh, a foolish notion from Sarah Palin that got legs and expanded, that it might have been some sort of a planned talking point. Uh, taxes. Uh, the prediction was boldly made that even people who are in the middle of the middle class were going to get massive tax increases and um, that their their tax bill would exceed any sort of uh, earnings potential that they had. Uh, if anything, I think from a tax perspective, we're either roughly in exactly the same place we were under Bush or perhaps slightly better if you're in that, again, true middle class. It's a legitimate question to ask what the word rich means and how much money you would have to make before an increase, uh, a tax increase like the one proposed by Hillary Clinton would begin to impact you, but nowhere near to the extent that this is claiming that there would be some sort of impact. And then finally, they make a prediction about the uh, talk radio. You wouldn't be allowed to just say whatever you wanted to without some fairness doctrine coming in. Frankly, I'm not that big, I'm not that focused on fairness doctrine, but well, you would love to be able to leverage the power of the internet to do some sort of live fact-checking. That I would settle for, because at the very least, an unfounded and unsubstantiated claim ought to be challenged. It has nothing to do with equal time to opposite side. It, it has something to do with the primacy of truth, which is something that clearly we don't seem to have much respect for. There's some talk about whether the largest bookstores, uh, Christian book publishers, would be kicked out of bookstores, and whether or not there'd be some sort of uh, massive nationwide uh, attack against people who sell the Bible or Christian books or are critical of homosexuality or whatnot. Again, if anything, we've seen the opposite. Uh, Lifeway, a nationwide Christian bookstore chain, has removed Jen Hatmaker as if she was never born from their entire store's roster, not because she has committed any sin, not because she has behaved in any particular way, but because she has got a perspective that as Christians, we should be interacting on a regular basis with all kinds of people, including gay people, including gay married people, and that that is perfectly consistent with the example set by Jesus of Nazareth. For that, for a Christian saying, we ought to imitate Jesus, this is what I think Jesus would do, this is why I think Jesus would do what I say I think he would do, Instead of having a scripture-based conversation about the life of Christ and the meaning of it and how we should try to walk that walk in the year 2016, Christian bookstores have rooted people who aren't sufficiently fundamentalist enough out of their shelves. So it's not that Barnes & Noble and Amazon have been pressured into removing quote-unquote right-wing Christian literature from their shelves. The exact opposite has occurred. I think the lesson here to be taken from this and it's something I've mentioned a couple of times, and I'll say it more directly here. You get a pretty good idea of how someone's going to behave. If you understand 
how they're afraid the opposition would behave. Meaning, if there is a reason out of this to feel a little bit positive and optimistic about the upcoming years, with Republicans controlling both sides of Congress, with at least one open Supreme Court seat, with Trump surrounding himself with the kind of people he's planning to surround himself with in the presidency and in the administrative branch, there's good reason to think that there might be some real trouble on all three branches of government. That by the time we get to four years from now, there could be an extreme amount of what I might describe as hateful pollution infecting the legislative, judicial, and administrative branches of our country. But we've seen predictions that are that dire be this wrong before. So there is some reason to think that maybe it won't play out that way. Because, again, these kinds of predictions have been that wrong before. However, the reason I think that it's wise to be concerned and that there's good reason to be extremely wary is when you understand what people are afraid of, when you know what their irrational fears are, what they think that but the, the persecution they think they will suffer in a certain situation... It gives you some insight into what they might do if they were given ultimate and absolute power. Meaning, some of the things that we've seen happen here are the inverse of what's been predicted to occur. Would somebody in the interest of defending homeschooling completely decimate any meaningful level of public school education? And have we just put that person into a cabinet-level position in charge of the Department of Education? Hypothetical question, maybe yes, maybe no. Would we, being so convinced that the wrong person might purge bookstores of all the wrong kinds of books, give you some reason to believe that if Focus on the Family had their way, they would be purging bookstores of all the, quote, wrong kinds of books? And I'm not just referring to pornography. Uh, I'm referring to any book ever written by Jen Hatmaker because she now says things that, although seem theologically credible, are politically opposite of me, and therefore she's making a political mistake in the minds of some people, so we will punish her through her theological works. And I could go on and on and on. That's the reason for fear. But all of this focused, this portion of the show, just on how wrong focus on the family could be. And I, uh, James Dobson's no longer with the organization, so between when this was published and and now he's been removed, he's he's been edged out. But also, he was really quick to defend himself by saying, hey, I wasn't making a word of prophecy. I'm not speaking as a pastor. I'm just, you know. But the bottom line is, you can't get this much this wrong with there be no consequences. Now, if you say all this from the pulpit, as if you'd received through the Holy Spirit the new word of God, then yes, you probably are lucky we no longer live in the era of the Spanish Inquisition because you've committed a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You have made a word of prophecy that is fundamentally proven to be false on every conceivable level. Jim Wallace worded it this way uh, on a Huffington Post article, at least reprinted on Huffington Post. It was originally published in 2008, not long after Dobson wrote his letter, and it was updated in 2011, basically saying, James Dobson, you owe America an apology. The fictional letter released through your focus on the family organization, titled Letter from 2012 in Obama's America, crosses all lines of decent public discourse. In a time of utter political incivility, it shows the kind of negative Christian leadership that has become so embarrassing to so many of your fellow Christians in America. We are weary of this kind of Christian leadership, and that is why so many are forsaking the religious right in this election. Later on in the article, Wallace says, It is shocking how thoroughly biblical teachings against slander, 
misrepresentations that damage another's reputation are ignored. Ephesians 4, verses 29 to 31, Colossians 3, verse 8, Titus 3, verse 2. Such outrageous predictions not only damage your credibility, they slander Barack Obama, who, you should remember, is a brother in Christ, and they insult any Christian who might choose to vote for him. And, of course, the difference between 2011 and now is that we are still having arguments that are racially motivated and perhaps racist about whether or not Obama is Christian. You know, he's certainly not Muslim. He'd be the worst Muslim in the history of Islam if he was Muslim. I've got other articles. Redletterchristians.org kind of wandered through. I'll see if there's anything new in their list of things. The 25 events that will take place if Obama is elected. Elementary schools will mandate homosexuality as a choice to children. Christian radio stations removed from the airwaves. Pornography is mandated to be openly displayed in gas stations, newsstands, and grocery stores. Uh, Four U.S. cities will have been bombed, and Obama does nothing in response. Obama increases funding to known terrorist allies. He deepens ties with communist nations, and communist revolutions break out all over Latin America. Russia retakes all of Eastern Europe, emboldened by the fact that Obama is weak. And Tel Aviv is destroyed when the new Russia launches a nuclear attack against Israel. These are all predictions in that same letter. And as you can see, they get increasingly irrational and increasingly and obviously wrong as you go. There are other predictions that fall more on the political side of the spectrum, outside the realm of of just focus on the family or other religious right groups. Judd Lagoon for thinkprogress.org wrote an article at the beginning of 2015, on January 1st, uh, four things that were supposed to happen by 2015 because Obama was reelected. So different groups have different timelines. These were all the things that were supposed to be true on January 1st, 2015. I'll give you a hint. None of them are. Gas was supposed to cost $5.45 per gallon. In March 2012, on the floor of the United States Senate, Republican Senator Mike Lee predicted that if Obama was reelected, gas would cost $5.45 a gallon by the start of 2015. It was about $2.50 at the time that this article was written. Unemployment was supposed to be stuck, and perhaps stuck permanently at 8%. Well, we'll talk a little bit about some of the things that Obama has accomplished. At the time this article was written, it was under 6%. Stock market was supposed to crash immediately after Obama won re-election. Donald J. Trump predicted, The stock market and the U.S. dollar are both plunging today. Welcome to Barack Obama's second term. Charles Bilderman, the author of Intelligent Investing, a column at Forbes, wrote that the market sell-off after Obama's re-election was no accident, predicting that stocks are dropping with no bottom in sight. He predicted that the policies of the Obama administration that he would pursue would crash stocks. Uh, we know that's not true. At the time this article was written, again, this is you know, 2015, Dow Jones Industrial Average was at 17823 35% up from when Obama was, ele- was elected. And the entire U.S. economy is going to crash. All of those sort of things. Now, ironically, we're making some of the same predictions ourselves now. That, um, you know, stocks are going to do this, the economy is going to crash, so forth and so on. So it's important to kind of look at this from a perspective and be somewhat even keeled about it. Hello, Dave Prowse here. And when I'm not performing my one-man show, The True Voice of the Dark Side, I listen to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Syndicated Network. Right, back to rehearsals. Commander, tear this ship apart until you find those plans and bring me all passengers. I want them alive! 
Before I wrap up, I'll, I'll list just a few more. Seems kind of unfair to talk about what Pat Robertson might have said would happen, because he is easily the least rational among them. But I did find an article, alternet.org slash belief, 10 ridiculous Christian right prophecies. Some of them I've already kind of mentioned, it's more of the same. But here's a few that I didn't really get to. Making emergency contraception available without prescription will cause sex-based cults. One of the Christian right hires to the FDA, Janet Woodcock, warned that making Plan B available without a prescription could cause the drug to take on an urban legend status that would lead to adolescents to form sex-based cults centering around the use of Plan B. Legalizing gay marriage will lead to legalized parent-child marriages. You can also add bestiality and the whole the whole litany of things people say will happen. I called that out as ridiculous when the Supreme Court made their ruling a couple of years ago and immediately have lost any sort of contact with a lot of my Christian friends over my willingness to call something idiotic when it's idiotic. You know, I, I wasn't rude about it. I was just blunt about it and saying, hey, we've talked about this before. Consent is the difference. When you're ready to talk about consent, I'll be happy to talk to you about child marriage and bestiality and all you know, polygamy and all the other sort of things you are afraid is going to happen now because you may find that there's no slope at all, slippery or otherwise. Even down to the, the old canard of RFID microchips and the mark of the beast and um, all that sort of misinterpretation of the book of Revelations, conservative Christians not being allowed to vote, Sharia law, you know, and, and all that sort of thing. It's interesting that Glenn, Glenn Beck, who pegged Sharia laws coming from the Obama administration, has made a bit of an about turn. I think he's probably had a fresh look in the mirror just by reviewing some of the rhetoric coming out of the Trump campaign and has, in many ways, backtracked from his previous positions. The military will court-martial Christian soldiers who don't hide their belief. A new don't ask, don't tell, but this time about Christianity. That rumor rapidly spread through the Christian right with the help of Fox News and Breitbart News. And this probably going all the way back to a point in time when Andrew Breitbart was alive. Most people you hear speak will tell you that Breitbart as an organization has descended into uh, even less credibility post his death being among the main sources of undocumented, um, unsubstantiated, flat-out lies, misinformation. The sludge pumped out into the, uh, into the media in an unfiltered form and un- unquestionably had an impact on this election. If only being an impact to the Democrats who just didn't go out and vote at all for either candidate or for people who voted for third parties instead. All the sort of stuff that I let off the beginning of the show. And then finally, because we're talking about the religious right, Obama will rise up and take over the world for Satan, triggering Armageddon and the return of Jesus Christ. One in five Republicans believe Obama is the Antichrist, who is, for those who haven't read the Left Behind series, supposed to be an emissary of Satan who takes over the world and triggers an all-out war between the forces of hell and of heaven, bringing the world to an end. I'm surprised that the number was as low as one in five when this article was published in uh, May of 2013. So, last but not least, here's 21 truths that prove that the Republicans have been wrong about all this stuff. I don't want to be somebody who uh, simply repeat. You know, the problem you have when you've got a newspaper that's asked to print a retraction. The trickiest thing I think that I ever had to do as a copy editor during my experiences as a in the newspaper business. 
was trying to retract something without restating the misinformation in the first place. And kind of that's what I've been doing for this entire inappropriate conversation. Mockingly, more than a little bit, mockingly, calling out all of the things that the religious right and that, frankly, political conservatives had so completely wrong for almost a decade about Democrats in general, Barack Obama in particular, that if there ever was a president of the United States on his last day of office was owed a huge collective apology and thank you at the same time. Even if you disagree with a lot of what he's done, I think that rather than making a priority out of pardoning Hillary Clinton, who hasn't been charged with anything, he should pardon Edward Snowden. And the fact that he probably won't is one of my biggest issues with Obama. I've got issues with Obama. Didn't vote for him either time. But frankly, we as a nation owe him an apology. And the reasons why are obvious throughout this entire Inappropriate Conversations show. But I want to do a couple things to make this not uniformly negative. One of them will come in the form of the different drummer here in a bit. But the other one is to kind of put some truths out there to sort of correct the misinformation. And I'm going to go back much, much further than just the last eight years, because this is not just a new pattern here. I'm referring to an article from Soapboxy.com, S-O-A-P-B-O-X-I-E.com, slash U.S. politics, 21 truths that prove Republicans have been wrong about everything. Updated May 23rd, 2016, meaning that this has probably been a, an ongoing article at this particular site for quite some time. And I'm just going to deal with their bullet points, not a, not a lot of the detail, just in the interest of time. The article's out there at soapboxy.com for anyone who wanted to read everything behind it. In the 1960s, Republicans wrongly claimed that the passage of Medicare would be the end of capitalism. I don't feel like capitalism's over. In 1993, when Bill Clinton raised taxes on the wealthiest 1.5%, Republicans predicted a recession, increased unemployment, and a growing budget deficit. They weren't just wrong, they were kind of exactly wrong. That when Clinton did this, we were at our point of greatest growth, and that when Bush came in and flipped it and did the opposite, we had the biggest recession since the Great Depression. In 2001, when George W. Bush cut taxes for the wealthy, Republicans predicted record job growth, increased budget surplus, and nationwide prosperity. And what actually happened was one of the biggest budget surpluses in our history, handed from Clinton to Bush, disappeared within mere months. In 1993, when the Brady Law was, a pa was passed and assault weapons bans were passed, Republicans predicted an increase in rates of crime and murder that simply making sure that somebody who was criminal or dangerous couldn't get a gun was going to increase the rates of crime and murder. At the time, it was confusingly inept, the, the mode of thinking, because if you can prevent somebody with a criminal record who's expressed angry and violent criminal intent from getting a gun, surely that would do, well, it would do what happened. That law passed, the rates of crime went down, and the murder rate in particular. Now, there are suggestions that that can't be pegged strictly to a particular weapon ban or a particular background check set of rules, that maybe the abortion rate has something to do with it. Anybody who's confused about that should frankly stop now and take a quick look at the Freakonomics books written by Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner. They'll go into the kind of detail you need behind that theory. I named Stephen Levitt a different drummer in Inappropriate Conversations 15. June of 2010, denouncing the war on drugs, uh, basically saying that just say no has caused more damage than 
drug abuse itself uh, because of how naive and simple it was. But in the Different Drummer segment, I do mention a little bit about their theory about the role that abortion may, may have played in reducing violent crime rate. Republicans predicted that we would find Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, even though the UN weapons inspectors said that those weapons did not exist. Um, then my worry is that something like that, that seems so tired, has now been taken so much for granted that we forget how important that was. Every single U.S. soldier, every single innocent Iraqi citizen caught in the crossfire, all the nonsense from failed nation building from Bush and Obama in Iraq can be hinged to that one piece of somewhat intentional or certainly willfully disregarding factual information. You know, truth is the first casualty of war. Prior to going to war in Iraq, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld optimistically predicted that the Iraq war might last six days, six weeks, I doubt six months. Depending on who you ask and how you view the conflict, we are still dealing with it. Republicans said waterboarding and other forms of enhanced interrogations are not torture and are necessary in fighting Islamic extremism. I wish we could be talking about that as a, this is a lie during the Bush administration. It is a lie. Experts on interrogation will tell you that. It's just a lie we're still dealing with now in the Trump administration. In 2008, Republicans said that if we elected a Democratic president, we would be hit by al-Qaeda again, perhaps worse than the attack in 9-11. I'm not saying that we haven't had moments of extremist-related violence on our shore. We haven't had anything like 9-11 again. And it was Obama, not Bush, who ultimately dealt with the leaders of al-Qaeda at the time. Not that the Bush administration did nothing, they just didn't finish. In 2009, Republicans predicted that the economic stimulus package would only make the recession worse and cause more unemployment. On a short-term basis, if you measure it in days or weeks, that may have been true. But most economists felt like it was a much better solution, and certainly history bears that out. Most Republicans said that President Obama should be impeached because of the 2012 attack on the U.S. consulate in, in Benghazi. Their own investigation over many years and many millions of dollars have found that to not be true. It also ignores all of the different consulate and embassy attacks during the Bush administration. Republicans said we must deregulate businesses so they'll be more profitable so that we can enjoy the wealth created by deregulation. It's staggering to me that this theory is still carrying any water with anybody after what happened in 2007 and 2008. Yet here we are. Republicans predicted that Obamacare would hurt the economy and kill jobs. As you may have guessed, the article says they were wrong. 2014 was the first full year that Obamacare was in effect. And during that year, the United States saw the fastest rate of job creation in 14 years and the best rate of economic growth in over 10 years. I will only say that a lot of the impact of Obamacare is going to be experienced over a long period of time. Making a decision based on any one year is probably a mistake. Republicans said that if President Obama was re-elected, the price of gasoline would jump. We talked about that one already. The Republicans said that President Obama would be terrible for the economy. That uh, doesn't appear to be true. I guess you could always have arguments about whether the economy would be even better. But right now, we're having arguments about how terrible the economy is when, in many economic measures, it's not as bad as people think. Let me jump over to some just some very specific statistics related to, uh, I guess it's things we probably should be thanking Obama for. Unemployment, then 7.8, now 4.6%. This is an article comparing Obama from the what he inherited to where we're at now. 
written in December 2016 by Samuel Ward, samuel-ward.com. Obama has been great for America. Check out these stats. I will say as a disclaimer that there are stats and there are stats. Um, Obama has not succeeded on every front, so there are some negative stats, which I'm quite sure this article isn't going to share. Uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average, then 7949, now 19170, a difference of 11,221. GDP growth was then um, negative 5.4, now positive 3.2, a difference of 8.6. Consumer confidence then was 37.4, now 107.1, difference of 69.7. Americans living below the poverty line then was 43.6 million, now 43.1 million. 500,000 difference, not the most statistically significant difference in the world, but it's significant to 500,000 people at the very least. Americans without health insurance, then 49 million, now 29.8 million, a difference of 19.2 million. The answer, of course, to that is that how, how good is the quality of the health insurance? How well does that health insurance guarantee access to medical care and services? There are gaps. There are problems. Many of those problems have been caused by the fact that we have not united behind a solution. And a lot of the foot dragging and a lot of the obfuscation has created some of the issues that's left 29.8 million people without coverage, and perhaps many of the 19 million who are in that delta don't have the coverage that they still yet need. Federal budget deficit then was $1.4 trillion, now $590 billion, a difference of almost $2 trillion. Federal spending as a percentage of GDP then was 24.4, now is 21.4 for the projected fiscal year 2016. A difference of 3% and may still be an argument that government is too big, but it can't be made as an argument that Obama has made it bigger. Number of U.S. troops in Iraq then, 139.5, now 5.2, 5,200 people. A difference of 134,000. Number of U.S. troops in Afghanistan then, 34,400, now 9,800. A difference of 24,600. All this for a war that Rumsfeld himself predicted should be over in six weeks at the most, certainly not six months or longer. So uh, I would go on. There's more here in terms of the impact of Obama when it comes to taxation, the commitment of Republicans to, frankly, clearly disputed concepts like trickle-down economics. But the fact of the matter is, a lot of the things that people said were going to happen didn't happen. Republicans routinely accuse Democrats of wanting to cut defense spending to the bone and leave us defenseless. History has consistently proven them wrong. Under Democratic presidents and Congresses, the United States still spends more on defense than the next 10 countries combined. Republicans frequently insist on spending hundreds of billions of dollars on weapons systems that the Pentagon doesn't even want in order to benefit the multi-billion dollar defense contractors. Lobbyists, in other words. It's enough to say that numerous predictions were made, many of them dire, irrational, across the political spectrum, but mainly on the right side of the political spectrum, not limited to merely Christians getting it wrong, but politicians getting it wrong, including elected politicians on the floor of the U.S. Senate or the House of Representatives getting it wrong. Things like Obama's bringing 100 million Muslims to America. Well, he doesn't have much time to make that prediction come true. He's in the, he's in the pocket of the Muslim Brotherhood. 
You know, um, frankly, Franklin Graham is more in the pocket of Russia than Obama is with any individual Islamic state. Uh, claims that he was going to create youth re-education camps, coming to take your guns, coming to take your gold, going to build FEMA-style concentration camps. No, none of this happened. So what do we do about the fact that the misinformation isn't just that somebody made a prediction, their prediction can be demonstrated to be factually false, and therefore there ought to be a reckoning. The biggest thing stopping us from doing something about it is the impact of fake news and misinformation on our electoral process. The fact of the matter is, I've just cited a bunch of things which are obviously easily proven to be inaccurate predictions. And I've got people within my circle of friends and especially family who simply will not acknowledge that a fact is a fact. Rachel Maddow, on a recent episode, took to looking at poll data that reveals that Trump voters are living in what she calls an alternate state of reality. This is from DailyCost.com from December 9th of this year. Essentially, some of the uh, things that were revealed in the analysis of the data is that 40% of Trump voters believe that Donald Trump won the popular vote. I'd be willing to bet a statistically significant percentage of those people don't even believe it the way Trump believes it, that you can't, you can't count California in the numbers. It's more, because 29% of Trump voters believe California's vote should not be included in the popular vote for whatever reason. There's probably a lot of people who just don't recognize that 2 million more votes for Clinton means that Trump didn't win the popular vote. 60% of Trump voters believe that millions voted illegally for Clinton. 73% of Trump voters believe that George Soros paid Trump protesters. So on and so on. Things which, you when you make that kind of claim against somebody, it almost kind of has to be true, right? When Trump directs his Twitter army to engage in a coordinated, hate-filled campaign attacking a college student for raising a question in a town hall that Trump was offended by or aggravated by for some reason, Trump needs to figure out that he needs to provide not just the same amount of protection for the rights of privacy and pursuit of happiness for that college student that he would ask for himself. In fact, libel laws and slander laws in this country, Supreme Court rulings including Times versus Sullivan, would tell you that as somebody who is a public figure, who's willfully sought the public spotlight, who has run for president, Trump has no claim to a right to privacy compared to what he has done to directly attack private individual citizens in some ways attack them via Twitter, trying to unleash a quote-unquote world of hurt on people he perceives to be his political enemies, including some who have nothing whatsoever to do with politics. They're simply citizens asking questions. And I would bet that more than 50% of Trump voters don't see anything wrong with one of those damned liberals getting their comeuppance in the form of death threats against their parents, death threats against their kids if they have kids, harassment at all hours of night, basically forcing these people to completely shut themselves off from the outside world, not receiving or reading their mail, not using the computer in any way whatsoever, shutting down the cell phone, switching to an unlisted number, moving from one house to another in some circumstances. And yet, to go back to the dear family member topic, this is happening. It's happening a lot. And you'd have to be crazy not to acknowledge that it's true. You're in, you would have to be insinuating that the people who can document in great detail 
whether that be Megyn Kelly from Fox News or just a random steel worker in Indiana, are lying, are making it up, or maybe their fate doesn't matter. Because people who are overreact to insinuations and accusations that they might be racist are perhaps right to be so sensitive. In some cases, this isn't based on race at all. It's based on ideology. And I'm flabbergasted to think how that makes it better. How does attacking another citizen because they think differently from you qualify in any way whatsoever as American when one of the most American ideas I can think of is the fact that we came together as a nation around the idea of civil discourse where differences exist and differences will persist because we have an electoral process that allows us to trust that we're all going to align ourselves behind a U.S. Constitution and every two years, the House of Representatives is going to roll over. Over the course of six years, thirds at a time, the Senate is going to roll over. And over the course of four years, the presidency is going to roll over. Unless we decide that those rules just don't apply anymore. I had a fair amount of indecision about what to do for the different drummer for this particular episode. I'd uh, toyed with a fictional character for quite some time, as a matter of fact, because what I wanted to do was deal with someone where you could point to that person and talk about a transforming change and say, well, the bottom line is, even if people believed all these negative things were true about Barack Obama eight years ago, surely they have seen either that he has fundamentally changed He's not as Muslim as they thought he was. He's not as Kenyan as they thought he was. Or that their opinions were wrong in the first place, and therefore they should shift and react respectful of those changes. I've given up on that idea. Right now, it's very hard for me to believe, at the end of 2016, that people are capable of recognizing that new information that is more factually valid than the information they had before is available to them, and they should yield to it. Nowhere is this more true than within the church. I'm debating whether or not the next Walk the Earth will be the last Walk the Earth. In Walk the Earth 42, released uh, here recently, I kind of laid down what I think is probably the most important concept for me in terms of what Jesus accomplished uh, from a Christian perspective through crucifixion, resurrection, etc., And I have one question facing me, and then I've got a bit of a gap. So when I get into 2017, if there are Walk the Earth episodes, I don't know right now what those questions will be. I've got a date sort of set aside for January, but I don't know if I've got a question for that date. Pretty good indication that maybe Walk the Earth has actually reached its destination. But if that's true, it's going to reach its destination with a really, really dark episode coming out in the next week or so, hopefully with enough distance to Christmas that recording it won't impact my emotional connection to the Christmas holiday itself. But I intend to to look at the question of whether following Jesus collectively, whether following Jesus within within a church or parachurch or a group of Protestant churches or denominationally, whether being part of a group of Christians is still even possible when something like 80% of evangelical Christians no longer think that character is all that matters— in leadership decisions. I'm not saying that I would stop aligning myself collectively with the church because 
a whole lot of Christians voted for Trump, I would just appreciate if they would at least acknowledge that in doing so, it makes some sort of mockery of everything they've ever said in previous elections about people like Bill Clinton. And that's something that they would never do. It's a bridge too far. It's a place they can't go to. Meaning I know that I would be trying to walk hand in hand and making a meaningful difference in the world by trusting that the person next to me, who is either a pathological liar or in so much denial that it might be very, very difficult for me to trust that we can actually be aligned in any meaningful way to make any sort of good happen in the world. The kinds of denial that looks at things and says, well, no, no, I, I think Trump actually won the popular vote. Why do you think that? Because I need to. <laughs> well, no, that's not a good enough reason. You can't justify your vote for this man by pretending that he didn't watch 15-year-old girls change clothes in a changing room in Miss America or Miss USA pageant, because he did. You can't ignore everything that he said that he did to Billy Bush, that dozens or at least a dozen women have come forth and said, yes, that is what he did. The level of plausible deniability has got to be so great that it must, in those Christians, overwhelm any voice the Holy Spirit could possibly have in their lives. So how in the world would I manage it if I had to walk the, walk the earth again? The church that I'm a part of right now dissolved. Because I'm in good hands now. But if that church, for whatever reason, dissolved, then I had to go find another. I don't know that it would be worth the effort. Therefore, Walk the Earth as a podcast might not have much more to say. We'll see how it goes. For a different drummer, to get back to the point, to try to end this on a positive note, I decided instead to tip my hat to one of the voices in the midst of this extremely difficult year that I've appreciated more than I ever had before. Bed Midler, as a performer, has, just on the music side, had a dozen songs on my MP3 player at the beginning of 2016. She will hit 100 by the time I get to the end of 2016. I have added that many CDs. I have put that much more focus on what she's done. Because in some ways, I guess it all finally clicked for me. I've never been indifferent to Bed Midler, where I've liked her work, I've loved it. And in some cases, it just it, had, it, it was never for me. I was listening to an episode of Pod is My Co-Pilot, uh, right going into Thanksgiving. It was an episode, a pre-Thanksgiving episode. And one of the people on the show was you know, kind of referring to her as being in the realm of diva, and that her work was inherently theatrical, and almost inherently, willfully, and intentionally respectful of the past. And it's weird, right? Uh, she's old enough that you might be putting her on the list of people to be worried about. 2016 hasn't done, hasn't done doing its damage yet, clearly, right? But by all accounts, reasonably good health, um, still active, still making a difference out there. And from a Twitter perspective, she's one of the few examples I can cite of somebody who is a celebrity that I've followed on Twitter intentionally because I wanted to follow that celebrity. Now, here's the thing that connects to the topic today. Midler doesn't always get it right. She has, at times, had to truck back and apologize because it can be very difficult to strike the right notes when it comes to race relations when you're part of the racial majority or to um, trans issues when you're, you're not trans. And there's sometimes the effort to be very sympathetic and willfully sympathetic as an ally to the LGB community, we fall short on the T side. Sometimes we fall short on the B side as well, truth be known. 
But what I've seen her demonstrate, a quality that you'd like to see in the president of the United States, a quality that I think we're going to miss in the president of the United States that we've got now to the one we're about to go to, is that willing to say, you know what? I've looked at this from a different perspective. I don't think I hit the right note there. I don't think my position's correct and I'm going to change it. That's not the kind of thing that we tend to forgive politically. I've called it out before that we live right now in a political climate where no one's allowed to be mistaken, that no one ever gets it wrong. You're a liar instead. And if that's the case, then Bette Midler has really been a beautiful liar this year because the two or three times she's gotten things wrong, she's found the right way to speak up and set them right. Seems wrong to do a different drummer segment without talking about a little bit of the biographical information. And frankly, anything I say is going to be a bit of an understatement. In Midler, we're talking about somebody who's won multiple Golden Globe Awards, multiple Grammy Awards, has won a Tony Award, has been nominated for Academy Awards. Her, re- her resume speaks for itself. But here's what you get if you look quickly at Wikipedia and just sort of see what the introductory information there would offer. Midler is an American singer, songwriter, actress, comedian, and film producer. Age 71 at the time that I'm recording. Born in Honolulu, Hawaii, Midler began her professional career in several off-off-Broadway plays after making an appearance as an extra in the film Hawaii. Prior to her engagements in Fiddler on the Roof and Salvation on Broadway in the late 1960s, she came to prominence in 1970 when she began singing in the Continental Baths, a local gay bathhouse, where she managed to build up a core following. Since 1970, she has released more than 14 studio albums as a solo artist, and throughout her career, many of her songs became hits on the record charts, including renditions of The Rose, Wind Beneath My Wings, Do You Want to Dance, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, and From a Distance. In 2008, she signed a contract with Caesars Palace in Las Vegas to perform a series of shows titled Bette Midler, The Showgirl Must Go On, and that ended in January 2010. Midler made her motion picture debut in 1979 with The Rose, which earned her a Golden Globe for Best Actress. In the following years, she starred in a string of hit films, including Down and Item Beverly Hills, Outrageous Fortune, Beaches, First Wives Club, Stepford Wives, and they did not mention my favorite, Ruthless People. She also starred in For the Boys and Gypsy and won two additional Golden Globes for these films. In a career spanning almost half a century, Midler has won three Grammy Awards, four Golden Globes, three Emmys, and a special Tony Award. She's also sold over 35 million records worldwide and has received four gold, three platinum, and three multi-platinum albums by the RIAA. So, again, quite the resume. I think the right thing to do, then, is to speak from the perspective of, well, what clicked with me? How did I reassess Midler in such a dramatic way here in the last few months? Well, part of it is the political perspective that she shared and her manner of sharing that perspective. She is good at inappropriate conversations, I think is probably the way that I would put it. And a good reason to name a different drummer. The other reason is, from a different drummer perspective, just look at the breadth of the work that's being done here. Actress, musician, producer. Some of the uh, Emmy Awards for television work were for uh, made-for-TV specials, contributing in many ways. And I want to also kind of cite charity work here at the end in terms of things that she's done to walk the walk. Uh, The New York Restoration Project, um, she helped found in 1995 as a nonprofit organization with the goal of revitalizing neglected neighborhood parks in economically disadvantaged neighborhoods of New York City. 
In 2001, she established after 9-11 programs run by her foundation which helps wounded service members and their families by providing them resources, including custom homes. One of these programs helps service members recovering from trauma, injury, and loss. And also, ever since the first Gulf War, she goes to the USO and on bases to show her gratitude to military members by serving them meals just before deployment. I don't know what degree this is related to for the boys, but it seems similar in terms of content and focus. So here's somebody who has given back. Most people, I think, probably know Midler either from songs on the radio or from appearances in film, either uh, the soundtrack, things like uh, Wind Beneath My Wings, or the performance, also Wind Beneath My Wings. Beaches would be an example of that, too. I was always somewhat lukewarm to the more sentimental songs that were hits on the radio. And part of that, I guess, is me just being naturally more, more likely to cheer for the underdog than the favorite. When the whole country collectively gets behind something like From a Distance, I'm more likely to seek out a different version. My MP3 player for years had From a Distance by Nancy Griffith on it, and not From a Distance by Bette Midler. And maybe there was a time when my MP3 player had a small enough capacity that I had to make those kinds of choices. But now that I don't, now that I've got much more song capacity than I've ever had before, it just made sense to breathe in just a little bit more of the recordings that Midler has done. And that process isn't over just yet. So for me, that's a change in perspective. I think coming in part from recognizing that there's more going on here than just music and movies. The Caesar's Palace program that she put together, which I never saw, right? But that might be the best way for me to think about it and to sort of connect with the overall you know, catalog of work that she's doing. The, the showgirl must go on. She's a bigger-than-life figure and still active through all of these years. And maybe a lot of that is simply because of that same thing. Uh, more performer, I guess, than strictly musician or even strictly actress. And, more important to me, somebody who's willing to speak up. Somebody who has achieved like that million Twitter follower mark, not experiencing much of a hiccup for even standing in opposition to, call it 45% of the people in this country who voted for Trump and would probably find Midler's perspective extremely unwelcome. In that sense, I think she shares pretty good company with a lot of people, probably a lot of people who listen to inappropriate conversations, and certainly with me. I find myself on the opposite side of the fence from the 45% who doesn't have any problem with the character, behavior, decision-making, and frankly, constitutional acumen of Donald J. Trump. So, as different drummers go, I needed to scrounge here a little bit. This wasn't an episode where the different drummer was foundational to the topic at hand, but I would say that Midler has been one of the people who's been the loudest at suggesting that we maybe, in my lifetime anyway, perhaps not hers, but in my lifetime, have never had a first, qua a first lady quite like Michelle Obama. We may get to the point where we look backward at this period in history, saying we didn't know how good we had it with a president like Barack Obama. And I claim no credit for that whatsoever, having very intentionally not voted for him in both of the opportunities that I was presented. But that's the thing. This isn't about tribalism. It isn't about cronyism. I don't get to suffer through the ability of not giving credit where credit's due because I didn't cast a vote. I don't get to play the not-my-political-party, not-my-denomination, not-my-clan card. The fact is, Midler's demonstrated through 
the broad variety of things that she's done, stage, screen, and also performance of other sorts, that you can kind of break down those barriers. You can kind of bring people together in different ways. Johnny Carson, I was very surprised that she played such a prominent role at the end of Johnny Carson's career. It occurred to me, even back in the 90s, that there was a lot of what Midler did from the 60s, certainly, and even the 70s, that I was completely unaware of. My first real notice of her might have been appearing in the the movie The Rose. Certainly was the first time I ever saw her on television or film. So I've always been at least a decade late to the game. This is my way of saying that it's never too late to raise your voice. It's never too late to speak up and say the right thing. And Midler has certainly done that in the year 2016. to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself i can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com as i mentioned a few times on the show today all of the programs for both uh, inappropriate conversations and walk the earth can be found at www.inappropriateconversations.org i'm also on soundcloud as ic underscore greg i provided some clips to some of the shows over time and i continue to plan for adding all of them before i'm said and done so that there's a way of getting at least a hint of what past inappropriate conversations are like in an audio form. I'm active on Twitter. IC underscore Greg is how you'll find me there. The reality is I may be just as likely to be tweeting about soccer or football this time of year as anything else, but I am active on Twitter. And from a Facebook perspective, there is a page for both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth separately there. Thanks for listening. show is a proud member of the pride 48 podcasting network check out other great podcasts at pride 48.com slash shows